The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, as I mentioned at the beginning, today is World Mission Sunday, which, as this morning's collect highlighted, is an opportunity for us to focus on how we can participate in the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. But to be honest, my words this morning aren't even going to broach the subject of foreign missions. Instead, I want to consider how we might be able to have a greater witness for the gospel right here in our day-to-day -day lives with those in our spheres of influence. The fact is, we live in an age where there are greater barriers to us impacting others for the gospel than there ever have been before. While both the content of the gospel and our human need for it as sinners is the same, it's the same as it was when Jesus first sent his followers out 2,000 years ago. The way humans see themselves and engage the world has changed drastically since then. So that in order to have almost any chance to make an impact for the gospel, we must recognize these changes in the world and account for them. So that's what I want to explore this morning with some help from the author Alan Noble, but it may take me a little while to get there because I, I need to begin by taking stock of the age we're living in. Drawing from the work of Charles Taylor, who, whom I've preached on a few times over the years, Alan Noble explains the age we live in 
the age we're living in now is, first of all, a distracted age. Over the past century, life in Western society has become filled with flashing lights, vibrations, bells ringing, little red dots, email alerts, notifications, pop-up windows, commercials, news tickers, browser tabs, billboards, and more. Now, the age of distraction began long before the advent of internet and smartphones, but these technological advances have certainly exasperated things. Just listen to a portion of how Noble describes an average day in his own life. He writes, As I drive the kids to school, we listen and sing along to a new song by a band we all like. On my walk back to the car after dropping them off, I check my email and make a few more comments in the Twitter debate I began before breakfast. In the car again, I listen to an NBA fan podcast. It relaxes me a bit as the anxiety of the coming workday continues to creep up on me. Noble notes that once he's in his workday, it can be filled with no shortage of anxieties and frustrations, which I'm sure we can relate to. So he says, when I need a coffee or bathroom break, I'll use my phone to skim an article or like a few posts. The distraction is a much-needed relief from the stress of work, but it is also a distraction. When I feel some guilt about spending so much time being unfocused, I tell myself it's for my own good. I deserve this break. I need this break. But there's no break from distraction. So innumerable gadgets, websites, channels, streaming service, songs, films, biometric wristbands, all of these constantly vie for our attention throughout the day. And even if you're not much of a techie, society still provides us with no shortage of ways to distract ourselves, such as the television or the radio. But Noble's explanation of why being distracted is so attractive to modern people is that it relieves us from the burden of being alone in our thoughts. Distraction relieves us of the burden of being alone in our thoughts. He observes that the reason we're always being encouraged to read something, do something, watch something, or buy something new in Western society is because our society seems to have agreed to an unspoken truth that being alone with our thoughts is disturbing. So Noble laments that even when he takes a break at work, the distraction is still there, making it so he still can't actually hear himself think. But he admits that's also sort of the point of the distraction. Because most of the time, we modern Westerners would just assume not hear ourselves think. Since there's always the risk that unsettling truths might bubble up. Noble confesses, The person I'm most uncomfortable being alone with is myself. And that's okay, because I've become very good at avoiding myself. 
For example, he says, if I get stuck alone on an elevator and I start to feel that anxiety, the dread of having to examine my life even for a minute, I just take out my phone and poof, it's gone. Or if I sense that I need to have a heart-to-heart talk with myself about sin or doubt or fear, all of a sudden I remember that it's my night to do the dishes and I can't do the dishes without listening to a podcast. So while a life of distraction may be what helps us get through the day, not unlike a substance addiction, it ultimately creates more problems than it cures and it hinders our flourishing. In fact, distracted living can prevent us from being introspective at all. But even if we manage to think about God, according to Noble, it's usually only for a moment because we just got a text message from our spouse about what to have for dinner tonight. But it may surprise you that Noble suggests even the Christian things we do can aid us in hiding from ourselves. For example, an attempt at devotional time in Scripture can easily turn to an intellectual exercise as we're distracted to do some deep dive on the Greek meaning of some word, all while we're actually missing out on an encounter with God and His truth. But another significant consequence of distracted living is the toll it takes on our minds. For a long time now, multitasking has been shown to have a harmful effect on the way our brains function and on how our brains even store or process information. But living with constant distractions also has the effect of just leaving us feeling mentally worn out. You ever feel that way at the end of the day? It might not be a coincidence. And this has real-life implications on our lives. For example, such cognitive exhaustion can be a real detriment to our decision-making. As Noble describes, when our daily lives become filled with constantly making all these tiny decisions, such as, what song should I listen to? Should I share this article? Should I check that text message? How should I reply to this email? When it becomes time for us to make important decisions, we may be too exhausted, or we're more likely to make mistakes, or we may just avoid making a decision at all. But the mental mental exhaustion resultant from distracted living also leaves us incapable of having very much sustained, deep thought. And what this means is that we'll be likely to have much more contradictions and incoherence, inconsistencies in our, our basic beliefs. And yet if we're confronted with a deficiency, say, in our moral code, our ethical code, we'll usually just ignore it and go back to being distracted. So the point here is not that technology or other distractions are inherently bad. Not at all. But for all of the good technology does us, we can't afford to ignore the ways it can also shape our lives for ill. 
So that's the first way the world has significantly departed from the way it was in the past, particularly, you know, biblical times. We live now in an age of distraction. But over the last five centuries, we've also entered into a secular age in Western society. And what this means is that if you just imagine a little over 500 years ago, just a little over 500 years ago, belief in God in the West was completely universal and completely unchallenged, unquestioned. But now, Christianity has now come to be viewed as just one option among many others and frequently not the easiest of the options to embrace, right? And this 500-year shift into secularism has been marked by two significant changes in society. First, thinking back again to a little over 500 years ago, virtually every single Westerner was a Roman Catholic, specifically, right? For better or worse, there was no other option, right? But fast forward to today, and there are at least five or six distinct branches of Christianity to choose from. Then there are other religions beyond that, followed by an endless number of options that don't include belief in God at all. So one reality of our secular age is that whatever we believe about anything, none of us can escape an awareness that there are always other options out there. That every belief is contested. But a second change of secularism which inclines people not to bother with God is the reality that human advance has created at least the appearance of a world where God is not actually necessary. Now, I'm not saying God is unnecessary, of course. I'd be kind of cutting my nose off to spite my face, wouldn't it? But because of the many ways human ingenuity seems, seems to have mastered the natural world, it can seem like God's unnecessary. It can feel that way to many. Just one example Noble gives is that very few of us, for example, actually rely on good weather for our sustenance. Right? Even in an agricultural area like the valley. Instead, we rely, or it feels like we rely, on the chain of human methods and organization that get food into our pantries and fridges. eventually. Human ingenuity. So even though we may hear at church that God is our provider, to the average person out there, it sure doesn't feel like he's the provider. It feels like humans are the provider. The truck's the provider. So we can see how many people would share the outlook of the scoffers described for us today in 2 Peter 3, 4, who are essentially looking around And they're seeing everything functioning the way it always has. And they're asking, for what reason should I expect Jesus' second coming? The way humans seem to to make everything in our worlds run and seem to be getting progressively more adept at making the world run, right? Self-driving cars are just around the corner. That gives contemporary humans the sense that belief in God is an optional preference that one can add to their life or not, like sweetener in my tea. 
So for reasons that I don't have the space or time to fully explain here, people today are actually debating religious beliefs more freely than ever. But this is because secularism has caused them to feel that there's actually very little at stake. And one effect of secularism upon Christians is it can make us tend toward exercising our faith by signaling our beliefs to the world around us rather than practicing sacrificial love. I want to say that again. For Christians, the the influence of secularism can lead us to exercise our faith by signaling our beliefs to the world around rather than by practicing sacrificial love. So just like I might put a sticker on my car that shows the Baltimore Orioles are my favorite baseball team, I might put a Jesus fish right next to it, right? I'm signaling, right? Or just like I might share a post on social media that suggests what I think is the greatest superhero movie, which was probably none of them, I might also share a Bible verse or an opinion piece on what it really means to be truly pro-life. Now, while these might seem like fairly innocuous things to do, by exercising my faith primarily through signaling to the world around me my beliefs, rather than trying to practice love, I may actually be perpetuating the idea that faith is just a preference. I may be part of the problem. Not to mention, it is notable that by merely signaling my faith, it is unlikely I've actually helped anyone, right? But we do feel superiority when we signal. In fact, whenever we do enter into religious or even political dialogues these days, it tends to really be about winning arguments, and feeling we have a superior identity to our neighbor. Because that's what signaling is intended for, actually. Puffing ourselves up. My identity is better than yours, right? My sports team is better than yours. Well, the implications of this for our witness, the implications are enormous. Because when we engage somebody with the gospel... It's created, the the secular environment is such that if they don't feel it fits with the way they envision their life, they can easily dismiss the gospel as just being, you know, a personal preference of yours, right? Or if instead they adopt Christianity, they're most likely to exercise their faith by signaling it to the world around as opposed to actually feeling any of the demands of the gospel to live for love of God in their name. Maybe our evangelism creates little signalers rather than little Christs. So this is where today's gospel passage from Matthew 13 comes in. I'm finally going to get to the scripture. Jesus' parable of the sower makes clear that it's our responsibility, our responsibility is to be like the farmer, right? Spreading the seed of the gospel. While God is the one who gives the growth. Great. But in the parable, the only lasting results come from the seed that falls on good soil. But Noble points out something that you may not have thought about in reading this parable. He points out that the good soil is not something someone just happens upon or stumbles upon. 
No, good soil is something a farmer cultivates. The farmer cultivates good soil by working the ground, maybe for days, by plowing, pulling weeds, moving rocks. Well, for us to have much of a chance at all to become an effective witness of the gospel in this distracted and secular age, we're going to have to find a way to disrupt others from the hindrances of the distracted and secular age. To shake them out of their stupor, you might say. And yet before we can concern ourselves with doing that for others, we would do well to first consider how we can make good soil of ourselves. Cultivating a witness, an effective witness, by disrupting the negative effects of distraction and secularism in our own lives. Of course this begins with resting in God's grace. Understanding that God forgives us for the ways we allow distraction and secularism to steal us away from living in his presence. And to the ways it fosters beliefs in us that are contrary to his heart or or makes us prefer to signal our faith more than actually practicing love. But Noble does offer some guidance for disrupting the negative effects of distraction and secularism in our own lives. Noble suggests that we need to be intentional to live with God and his glory as the goal of our lives rather than ourselves and our own glory being the goal. Now, easier said than done, of course. But Noble says we can make some headway with this by learning to practice something he calls the double movement. Double movement. Simply put, the double movement is the practice of, first of all, acknowledging Goodness, when we encounter it, acknowledging goodness, beauty, blessing, wherever we encounter them in life. That's the first movement. But then the second movement is responding to that goodness we encounter by turning outward to glorify God or love our neighbor in response to it. So notice, this practice, first of all, requires us to pause enough to recognize goodness or beauty or blessing, which is easier said than done in a distracted age, right, where we're never able to, like, stop. But that's never where it should end, right? Instead, we should follow it with that second movement of turning from that recognition into prayer to God. Double movement. So, for example, take trees, right, which we talked about last week. Remember that? Well, going on a walk, we might notice a magnificent tree. And we might, you know, silence our phone, really look at it, take it in, admire its beauty. But then we might follow that with a prayer. It doesn't have to be a long prayer, right? But just that turn of thanks or praise to the God who created. Very simple practice. Noble says, though, that this double movement is the key to delighting in beauty. But practicing this double movement with beauty may also begin to impact what we consider beautiful. For example, if we're decorating our home, 
Noble suggests we eschew you the void mass-produced art to intention, and to intentionally seek out instead paintings or photographs that draw our minds upward, that point beyond human capacities. Right? Mass-produced stuff points what? To human ability, human ingenuity, churn out these prints, right? But the relevance of practicing the double movement goes beyond beauty. Another suggestion of nobles is that we cultivate time for silent reflection and introspection. So we're not, you know, the response to the sermon shouldn't be, oh, well, I'm going to throw away my smartphone. Not that I think you would, but that's not the appropriate response, right? It's just, can I carve out any time at all for silent reflection or introspection? Now, as we said earlier, the last thing most contemporary people want to do is be alone with their thoughts. Perhaps we're afraid of what we might find. But this is where the double movement becomes so important. You see, apart from God, when I look into myself and find something really ugly or nasty, I can despair. But as a believer, whatever we find in introspection, we can then turn with it in prayer to a gracious and loving God. There is no hopelessness, no matter what we find. But we're better off finding it, to be honest. It'll seep out of us anyway. In other words, as Christians who believe the gospel, we can face our need for introspection head on because no matter what we find, there's grace. Moreover, seeking to incorporate God's word into practices of introspection and meditation, note that that's a very different approach to scripture than kind of the intellectual or factual learning that we may be inclined toward. Noble recommends that. But another related practice he commends is the Sabbath. Sabbath can include worship, time with loved ones, or redemptive play, as Noble calls it. He says this is the kind of play that doesn't leave us mentally drained. You know what I'm talking about. But we might also keep Sabbath by restricting our screen time on Sabbath to activities that are intentionally communal. So it doesn't mean turning off my, my phone or my screen or my TV even. But being sure I'm doing it not to isolate myself or escape from reality, but to actually come together with my fellow man, with my family, whomever. Right? And yet both practicing silent reflection or a Sabbath can feel particularly uncomfortable for Americans. And this is because of the legacy of the so-called Protestant work ethic. That legacy has shaped many of us to believe that any time that is not quantifiably profitable, productive, and efficient, that is wasted time. That is a problem. Am I the only one that feels that? It's, it's like ingrained in my soul, right? But what if God helped us begin to view unproductive time not as a problem to be solved, but as an opportunity to open up ourselves to him. Maybe he could help us give ourselves that permission. So as I relay some of these ideas to you, I'm optimistic that they're going to resonate. 
And the reason is because, as you may recall, some of you may recall, our life questions last week asked things like, when do you recall feeling most connected to God this week? Or, or what practices help you be rooted in Christ? You know, or when do you feel more like a tumbleweed disconnected from, from God? And, and in the two life groups I was a part of, it was amazing. The theme that emerged was people feeling most, most disconnected from God when what? When they are either busy or distracted. And when do they feel connected? People said when they journaled, when they prayed on a quiet walk. As well as people mentioned different points during the liturgy at church. And Noble suggests that certain practices of the church are even greater tools for reversing the effects of our distracting and secular age than the personal tool practices I've been talking about. One thing Noble laments is the number of churches today that have organized their approach to worship by focusing on one question. And that question is, is what we're doing expressing a biblical truth? Now, that sounds like a good question to ask. But as virtuous as it may sound, Noble suggests this may lead, church, lead to church practices that actually enable and cater to the spiritual hindrances of our distracted and secular age. And they may actually fail to cultivate good soil. So typically the results of churches organizing their services around this one question are church services with sermons that seem to mimic TED Talks and worship that recreates the concert environment of secular entertainment. Now while this will undoubtedly be more comfortable for a greater number of people, put butts in the seats, right? It may even be exciting and entertaining. But it's going to be anything but disruptive the influences of our distracted and secular age. Instead, this approach to church allows participants to remain safely in their heads, and it encourages their beliefs to remain largely theoretical, right? They come to church, they think about their beliefs. That's kind of it. So Noble says no one should be surprised when participants then feel more like an audience when they go to church. Or when people stop showing up to church once they feel like they've learned everything. Hey, I kind of get it. These are the three points of fundamentalist Christianity and cool. But Noble suggests that alternatively, the ancient liturgical approach to worship like we do here, shameless plug. That approach to worship is surprisingly well equipped to disrupt the effects that life in a distracted and secular world may have on us. For example, Noble points to pa the passing of the peace, which we'll do here pretty soon. He points to that as acting out the double movement he's talking about, where we receive God's welcome when the priest pronounces the peace over us, but it doesn't remain in us, right? It's not just for us. Rather, we take it forth to our neighbor, who is a bearer of the image of God. And in that sense, we give that peace back to God, double movement. Now, Noble confesses he hates the peace. I know he's got some, you know, some people who agree with him here. 
Why? He says, he admits, he says, I want to stay in my head. I want to come to church and stay in my head. That's what secularism trains me to do. But he says, this is precisely the point, because worshiping God is not something I'm trying to accommodate to myself. Next, while Noble is not entirely opposed to contemporary worship at all, he observes that it often directs people's attention to the worship band instead of to one another. And the music may seem intentionally loud to the point that no one can actually hear themselves, let alone their neighbor, sing. Now you may think, well, that's a good thing. <laughs> you don't have to sit next to my spouse, right? But Noble contrasts this with attempting to sing together one song with different parts in harmony. He says, this is a small but significant performance of what we're looking forward to in the kingdom. So perhaps we need to step up our four-part harmony game around here. I don't know how to do it. But I've also shared with you Noble's concern that in our present age, in our present age, even Christians tend to live with worldviews that are in the best case fragmented and in the worst case completely incoherent with their faith, actually. And when we get most of our ethical views from what from media narratives, this is going to happen, right? And yet the announcement of the law, which we already did, right, whether in the Ten Commandments or in Jesus' two greatest commandments, that signals that our, our good is not something that we determine or choose for ourselves. Rather, it's, it's given to us by God. God tells us what is good for us, to love him and our then Noble goes on to consider the benefits of other elements in liturgical worship, such as public and communal confession, which counters society's distinctions of age, race, status, and class. Counters those with the reality that everybody needs forgiveness, no matter what you're wearing, what your bank account says. The liturgical calendar compensates for the loss of sacred times of communal celebration in secular society. We have one holiday left that's communal, which is Christmas, and it's been pretty well bastardized, right? He says, Scripture's read in the liturgical tradition with a solemnity that conveys the sacredness of God's word. And in the prayers of the people, we affirm our need for Christ and others. But according to Noble, nothing, nothing is so disruptive to distraction and secularism as Holy Communion where rather than having that, that pressure of being, the, the pressure being on us to recollect all the Lord has done is sometimes communion's practice, right? I gotta, I gotta really think everything he did on the cross and keeps us inside our heads. Instead, liturgical communion, we instead participate in a communal event where God feeds us rather than us conjuring up some spiritual feelings. God gives of himself and we only have to receive. Now, I'm not saying there aren't problems in liturgical worship, but I am saying that it is less of a capitulation to the distracted and secular age we live in. This isn't, so this isn't necessarily meant to be an, an infomercial for Anglicanism, though I could understand if it came off that way, and it kind of is, I guess. But what I do want to suggest to you is that perhaps church should feel weird. Perhaps church should feel weird. 
if, if at times the liturgy feels uncomfortable, now if you've grown up in Anglicanism, you're going to be like, I don't know what you're talking about, this feels normal, but if at times the liturgy feels uncomfortable, perhaps that's because it's calling us out of our heads and out of the world of secularism and distraction that we're so accustomed to living in. So I know I'm going a little long, but we're finally ready to consider how we might be a disruptive witness in the lives of others. Having considered how we might cultivate ourselves to be good soil, are there practices to help us cultivate others to be good soil, right? So that we're not just talking past them. Well, Noble has a few ideas and some that might surprise you. First, Noble pleads with us to stop practices that trivialize the faith into seeming like any other optional preference. He kind of calls it the t-shirt Christianity. Second, the liturgy of the church, as we just described, that's an immersive experience that may disrupt the distracted and secular mindsets. But in addition to these, Noble suggests two areas where people out in the world Secular people are most vulnerable to feel the tension that there is more to life than just this material world. And that is when they experience tragedy, particularly the death of a loved one, and when they encounter beauty. Now, I've always said, sort of half-jokingly, that as a priest, I prefer funerals over weddings. Um, and it's kind of true. Nothing against weddings, but... And I'm not saying this to be morbid, right? It's not that I'm sitting around wishing for funerals or death. But when we have a funeral here, there are people who don those doors who would never come into a church for any other reason. And there's nothing quite like being confronted with our mortality that can make us feel powerless and feel our need for God. But when we as Christians are able to encounter people, right, not just at a, at a funeral, but anyone experiencing tragedy with compassion, honesty, empathy, service, that's buoyed by the hope we have in Christ, that is going to be a disruptive witness. But finally, Noble suggests that encounters with beauty through art, but also through story, like literature or movies, can help our neighbors feel what he calls the solicitations of the spiritual. Right? God kind of drawn. So he commends activities that, frankly, mainstream Christian culture might not view as all that spiritual, like seeing a flick with a friend and discussing it afterwards, joining a book club, or discussing the latest episode of a TV show or album with a friend or coworker. But Noble insists the goal should be choosing aesthetically excellent stories, whether or not they're the most popular. So don't always go mainstream. And he even admits that such stories will tend to be darker or more depressing or heavy, which sounds unpleasant. But in good, tra good tragedies, for example, he says those force us to reckon with our place in the world problem of evil, to struggle for meaning. So in conclusion, I believe practices like I've mentioned today 
are perfect for us to consider as we draw near to the beginning of Lent. Perhaps this year as we prepare for Lent, we might ask God to show us a common activity in our lives that might be worth abstaining from, as well as some practice that might help us disrupt the effects of our distracted and secular age on our own lives. And perhaps in doing that, with God's help, we might not only cultivate ourselves to be better soil for God's seed, but we might also develop a witness that is more lovingly disruptive to the lives of others. Amen.